This is a podcast where we, as a group of friends, will talk all about films, what we love about them, and how they relate to and reflect real life and what's happening in the world. My name's Josh, and I'm joined by my co-host and very good friend, Jordan. How you doing, mate? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Very good, very good. Good, good, good. So, uh, like, the intention is that this will be a, a video series when, when all this blows over, but for now, we're just audio only, um, which is probably a good thing because... I've got this horrible buzz cut, which you've all seen, and your hair's like a buttery yellow colour at the moment. <laughs> I want to be a Malfoy. <laughs> how, how did that go down with uh, people who've seen it so far? It's been, uh, there's been a mixed, uh, a mixed reaction. A lot of, I, I, I've not had any hate, like pure hate, but it's just more a case of like, why? <laughs> if, if I'm, I'm, I might as well do it now, though. Nobody can see me. That's true. What's like the next steps? Are you, you going to go a different colour or? Uh, I've got to wait a bit so my hair doesn't fall out, but I'm either going to bleach it and get it lighter or I'll just go a colour for a bit. Luminous pink or a green. That, that, that'd suit you, that'd suit you. I've been, I've been red before. James, James liked my uh, my red hair. <laughs> so, yeah, so the idea is that we're going to bring our, our friends to join us on this podcast. And for this very special first one, we've got our good friend James. How are you doing, James? I'm very well, thank you. Very good. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Um, so what I want to do first is like to introduce us properly, is uh, to ask you both a, quite an important question, um, which is um, like... Do you have a moment where it sort of, and like the first moment where it dawned on you, like just how important films are to you, and when you realise, like, oh shit, I, I love, I really love films. Uh, one of the uh, <clears throat> the first films I was ever hooked on is actually one of our honourable mentions uh, later on. So I won't go too much into it, but it is Titanic. <laughs> oh, but what was it? The what was it that hooked you on it? I think it was. Uh, more to do with like the visuals uh, and just how realistic uh, it, it, it looked and probably the score as well because it's quite an iconic iconic score. I'm going to say you can be honest and just say Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love Celine Dion? What a banger, what a banger. A beautiful film. Jordan, what's, what's your pick? Uh, the, well, the first one that springs to mind is The Dark Knight because I remember the feeling and I went to the cinema with both my brothers I remember the feeling of it ending and how good it felt. Like, cause that is one of the best endings in a film like ever. Cause it, it's so open-ended. There's not really a happy ending and it really does like leave you wondering where it's going to go. But like that end monologue from Gary, the Gary Oldman. Yeah. Monologue, and it's yeah. just like, you know, a watchful protector, a silent guardian, a dark night. And then the score kicks in and it's just like, I just remember thinking this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it, it is pretty fucking special but i mean that night's pretty uh, we were a lot of teenagers then is there is there nothing from like is there nothing from earlier like as a kid or anything where you thought oh man i fucking love films well that's again like it's probably one of the ones that we're going to talk about but jurassic park like honestly because yeah. that that hit so many kids if you grew up in the 90s like everyone just became obsessed with dinosaurs everyone wanted to be a paleontologist <laughs> yeah and then friends came out and everyone like ah maybe not <laughs> <laughs> Toy Story as well, Toy Story. You can't forget about Toy Story. No, Toy Story is just a standard in it for people our age, I think. Yeah. Fond, fond memories. Um, so obviously we're, we're banging in the middle of a, of a global pandemic right now, hence uh, 
all this creativity that's flowing and why we decided to start a podcast. But um, we thought the best way to kick off this this podcast would be do an episode on disaster movies. So here we go. Disaster movies, for some reason, first started and were all the rage all the rage in the nineteen seventies with films like Airport, The Poseidon Adventure, and The Tower in Inferno. And then kind of had a resurgence in the late 90s, early 2000s as CGI came on leaps and bounds and filmmakers felt they had the technology to actually visually justify some of these things. So we saw some of the disaster movies that our generation are more familiar with, such as Twister, Independence Day and Armageddon. So we start with like, nobody really likes disaster movies or or, or they're never like considered as good movies or on the top of people's lists. Why? Why do we think that? I don't. I don't think they can. They're not like Oscar worthy. A lot of them, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if they ever get nominated for anything. It's just the tech stuff. It's just like sound editing or visual effects. Yeah. I don't believe um, it's that we don't like them or that they're not popular. Um, they're just not as big budget as other like Oscar winning films, and the stories can never seem to be uh, as substantial uh, as other genres can be. But I think we're drawn to disaster films more because I know for myself, you look at the the story and you visualize yourself in it and how you think, how would I react in that sort of situation? Everyone's got that kind of thing. Like what, what would they do there? Like it's a survival, isn't it? Like every time you watch a zombie film, it's just like, you think, Oh, I could survive that. Oh no, probably I'd I'd probably die straight away in the first 10 minutes. Like you, you look about your room and you think, right. Okay. So just say right now, zombie apocalypse somebody rings you and just says right they're coming what's the first thing you pick up to you <laughs> or, or where are you going to hide have you got enough food <laughs> that's because obviously um i know we're going to talk a bit more about titanic later i love how that's becoming like a theme of this <laughs> podcast but i watching the end of it and i thought like if your ship was sinking you'd you'd be screaming like you'd be screaming the house down like every, like pretty much all of you are going to die like why is it so calm I think it's one of those where you don't really know how you react, react until unless you're actually in that situation. But maybe the, they'd all come to terms with their own mortality, uh, and that was just it. People were still like cracking jokes and like still being spiteful, and it's like the band plays if you were in. <laughs> yeah, man, that's beautiful as well. But surely, like, if you're in, you're like a life death situation. Then surely, there's no time for jokes or anything like that. You'd just be shitting yourself surely it must be like especially then as well like you're not being able to contact anybody that you love or anything unless you were on the boat with them but just like maybe just if you knew you were going to die to give you like your final goodbyes to people and yeah that's awful like when you see like the um like the kids getting in like saying their last goodbyes to their dads and, and mm. stuff like that's that's powerful i that? think what's more powerful is the fact that you know that a, a lot of the stories that were in the film Titanic um, are actually true. The, the characters were mm. real people. And that's what hits home for me um, the hardest, I think. Mm. So like films like um, Independence Day and The Day After Tomorrow and films like that, they've become memes. And why do we think that is? Is it is it because like the, well, because the CGI was done well, some of these films are like nearly yeah. 20 years old. Yeah. Right? Or, they just haven't aged very well. They're all made by Roland Emmerich. <laughs> Literally, in, in, like you said, like disaster movies like were prominent in the 1970s. I'm sure he must have grown up, like he grew up then. And he thought, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring this back, right? And I'm going to just tell every world-ending story I can through film. Because the, the ones you mentioned there, like he did, 
I think he did Independence Day. He did Day After Tomorrow. He did 2012. He did the 99 Godzilla. Like, it's, he's got an obsession. I think he did the, I can't remember what it's called, White House Down or something recently. It's funny that um, some in some genres, you always have like a, a go-to man for that type of film. It's like with Michael Bay now, it's like, oh, we've got a load of money to spend on this like blockbuster. Who should we give it to? Let's give it Michael Bay. Give it the best. The best. Proven talent. <laughs> yeah. And also, I guess we've seen like quite a lot of spoof films on, on disaster movies. Like This is the End and obviously Disaster Movie. Again, why do we think like what makes them so easy to spoof and what makes them so like such a good opportunity to make comedy out of i think it's um it's easy to make comedy out of tragedy isn't it you look at horror films that's the same thing there's a lot of spoof of horror films i never thought about that though, actually, is it? that is true maybe just like i don't know the most heightened emotions that you're ever going to have is the most perfect okay. opportunity to make fun of yourself or of someone else there is like because you said obviously there's there are some that are recognised as being quite good. I mean, Armageddon got a lot of attention. Mm. That got that got a few Oscar nominations, but again, for the techie stuff. But I just, That had a belting tune with it as well, though, didn't it? Yeah, but uh, a Deep Impact's better. <laughs> I mean, would it be because, like, uh, the storylines are so far-fetched half of the time? You know, like alien invasions and such, that people don't even take that sort of thing seriously? This is the thing, in it? Because, like... Um, Obviously, having not having not been in that situ- in some of these situations, that it's so hard to sort of relate to the to the characters and put yourselves in their in their shoes. That um, for the for the more casual cinema goer, they're sort of thinking, "This is this is beyond belief. This is bullshit. I'm not going to watch that." So, um, talking about disaster movies, and we've you know we've mentioned some. I mean, I won't call them bad films, but the ones that are more like ridiculed or have become memes or spoofs. But um, as we were saying, we think there's some exceptions to the rule and we think there's some truly outstanding films that we think could be classified under this genre. Um, but before we jump into them, I think we need to talk about like how we actually categorise a disaster movie. Um, so I know, Jordan, you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, because well, the idea was, I think on the surface, when you think of a disaster movie, it, it does affect mankind. It's something that's going to affect the world and the world's going to end. Whereas... I think like some of the films we're going to talk about, that's where they fall into a subgenre. So on the surface, like like you look at Titanic, you, you just say that was a drama, but then underneath it is a disaster, but it's an isolated disaster that happened to a group of people as opposed to mankind. Yeah, well, I think disaster movies in general, they typically belong to uh, multiple genres. So you, the, the more to do with like action and thriller, uh, but they can cross over into other genres as well. Yeah. I mean, Titanic, I mean, you could say, I know, why do we keep talking about Titanic? But I mean, that was like the, probably one of the first like um, major disasters of it, of its kind. And I guess like that being such an, an interesting one, I think we'll find a lot of the films, I don't know, they just seem to be like, interesting or like one-off, or one-off things that happen that tend to be made into films. I think with Titanic... Put aside the uh, the romantic storyline that, that, that the film's based around. You look at the heart of the film, and it was such uh, it was like the world's biggest disaster at that time. It was such a big storyline that it's just a story that's going to get told over and over again. And James mm. Cameron, he, he did it almost perfectly. <laughs> there is there's, there's some continuity errors there. Isn't there? It's, it's not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the almost. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I guess it could be it could be a man-made disaster. Um, it could be human error. And then, but can we include monsters and zombies in in there? I'd say so. Yeah, because let's face it: if you get attacked by a zombies, you're going to think, "Well, this is a disaster." <laughs> yeah, but you could you could say that about anything, though, couldn't you? you could say that if, like, I don't know, you fall off a building. Uh, anything that's gonna gonna affect mankind, and that gonna affect mankind. That's how we're defining it. Well, well, that's, that's what I mean. It's, it's hard, isn't it? Like, because I've literally I've got Wally here as, as an example. Because Wally literally like they have to leave the Earth, <laughs> so it is kind of a disaster movie because the whole of mankind is affected. And you've got this trash cleaning robot that's having to do all this. I mean, if you look at the, um, the the definition for disaster, it says it's a sudden accident or a natural catastrophe that causes great damage or loss of life. So natural catastrophe. Not not necessarily natural, but uh, there's other definitions as well. I think, um, yeah, this is where we're finding loopholes in, uh, in how we're defining this. Yeah. Well, when we started exploring it, we found that there's actually quite a lot of films that you could shoehorn into a disaster movie if you wanted to, mm. which I think leads us nicely onto uh, our honourable mentions. So I don't know if you want to start with uh, <laughs> your, one of your earliest memories, which I think is quite hard hard to justify as a disaster movie, but um, let's hear you out. It's Jurassic Park. That's the one. Yeah, but it's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> It is incredible. But, yeah. Right. My argument is, right, I think maybe Jurassic Park, the first one, it, that's that's fairly isolated. But when you look at all the films that have come after it, it does start to span out into the rest of the world. Like Lost World, they do end up... Lost World is definitely in. a disaster film, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, right. <laughs> it, I, I think Lost World gets an out of time. I said it's a disaster film. Not that it's a disastrous film. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we needed to set that shirt from the beginning, yeah. like... Yeah, that mean, word mixed up that was going to cause us some issues but no like <laughs> right Jurassic Jurassic Park it's I think it's Spielberg's best and that's that I, is a big claim it's that's, not that's a big a claim though claim. It, is, right, it is a bold claim because what are you going to put it up against like I'd, it's arguably okay Jaws might be up there but other than that I don't think any other films that he's done get near E.T.'s a shout mm. but is it as good as Jurassic Park or Jaws hmm <laughs> I guess they're, they're all iconic films out there in, in their, their own, own right, right really. But, well, this but, is it. Like Jurassic Park was that iconic that when when was the last time that wasn't it wasn't animated, but you saw somebody take an actual serious stab at a dinosaur movie? I think visually, it's one of the strongest films still going. To be honest, it does hold up. It ha- it's aged so well. Well, that's you see some of these old films that use like um, like puppets and and stuff and like they just seem to they seem to, seem to age better because with cgi and technology that stuff dates faster than like yeah actual puppets and i mean sticking with like the um sticking with the jurassic park um franchise you look at um jurassic world they view cgi and you know for a fact that that's going to look a lot older in 20 years than what jurassic park's going to look i think because they, they used both didn't they? they did use puppets as well but I think watching the new ones, I didn't at any point think that looks bad. But I know what you mean. Like in, in 20 years' time, it won't look as decent as maybe Jurassic Park still does now. Yeah. It kind of um, breaks my heart a little bit because obviously, you know, some of our favourite films like, like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, I remember at the time thinking, 
like this looks insane like there's no way that i will ever watch this and think that this cgi is a bit shoddy or like we can catch it out but then when you watch it back now you just think sometimes you're just like oh I, I, I don't know how they got away with that one and stuff like that Do you know when legolas has been some sort of ninja or something like that i don't i don't understand how the hobbit got away with it like they should because <laughs> honestly lord of the rings like looks better than the hobbit films it does it I do, does, and yeah. i just don't understand there was such a uh, how big of a gap was there it was at least 10, like the 10 years rushed though isn't it um so go on jurassic park why tell me why you think that um why it sort of resonated with so much as a kid and i think because well, yeah. i was a kid <laughs> like no that's it like and i think when you were a kid in the 90s watching jurassic park and everybody just started obsessing over dinosaurs and i mean we can talk about the score because again like this is because it's going to sound like i'm just fanboying over jurassic park in it but I, that's my favorite score i think in film it's one of the best definitely it's followed very closely by wallace and gromit but <laughs> <laughs> But it, that is a tune. But it, 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 it generally is like I mean, iconic scores. I think you're going to throw like Star Wars up there and Indiana Jones, probably Pirates mm. of the Caribbean. That's an iconic score. But I just c- come on, like da, da, na, 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 I think scores are so important. Yeah. Scores are so important to the success of a film. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's hard to connect with a film emotionally when it doesn't have music. Like I mean, I'm going to argue with that. No, uh, <laughs> because it depends on the writing. It depends on the dialogue and, and and the actors. If they can grip you, and you don't even realise there's no music, then I think that might make for a better film. Okay, it, it's hard uh, to connect <laughs> for me anyway. I always find that in points in films, like the scene might be emotional already, but then if anything was to push me to like cry, it's when the score starts to rise and the music starts to come in. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Like it, it, it proper does just like get you there. <laughs> just that single violin pushes you over the edge. <laughs> it, it could be a bad violin. It just it could have, could have that friggin yeah. A bit of flute sends you over the edge. <laughs> but have you ever watched any of those videos on YouTube that have like the the music or the score removed and it's just like an awkward <laughs> yeah. mess? Yeah. Like I think the worst one, one is like uh, with sitcoms when they really remove the laughter. Yeah, and it's just like awkward silence. <laughs> and it, what about that that one of um, do you know in Spider Man Three where Tobey Maguire's walking down the street and it's like they've removed the music from the background and he's just like pointing at people with gun fingers and stuff with no music behind it. It's the most awkward thing I've ever seen. I think that's up there for top five disaster movies. <laughs> I've got. Oh, I had one more point about uh, Jurassic Park. Sorry, and that is simply Go Jeff on. Goldblum. Oh, what a man! What a man! What a man. What a man. Have you watched his Disney Plus thing yet? Uh, I've seen a couple of episodes, yeah. I've watched a couple, yeah. I've not watched it yet. He's such a fascinating guy just to watch. Even like he's, the way that he speaks, he's so accentuated with uh, his hand movements and things. He's just, I don't know, there's something fascinating about him. He's very handsy. Very. <laughs> and, he, and he can't he can't run, he bops. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just a weird bop, isn't it? <laughs> Right, um, so my honourable mention as a disaster movie is going to be Children of Men. Um, so this film came out in 2006 and it's, it is kind of critically acclaimed, but it did make a loss at the time. Um, it's directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who, as you both know, is probably my favourite director. He's done Prisoner of Azkaban. You absolutely Gravity, love that man. Roma. I do, <laughs> I, I really do love that man. Um, 
and it, and it's it's just such an interesting film. So it's set in London in in twenty. 2027 and at that time there's been 20 years of human infertility so like no one can have babies um and yeah london's just turned into like almost like a war zone it's torn apart by racism terrorism climate change like everything it's just completely torn apart and it's like they've used the infertility as an excuse to just bring out the very worst in people i like how it's quite an interesting one it's children man because like it's not affecting life so suddenly like it's like everybody's just going to slowly die out do you know what i mean like but but then again obviously it is affecting mankind yeah it's like a really slow extinction yeah it's it's a bit it's yeah it's an interesting choice that's all i'm saying it's interesting (laughs) because it's different to like normal like your apocalypse films everyone's going to die all at once there's nothing you can do whereas this one it's like you've got the time and you know that eventually we're all going to die out hmm yeah, I guess like because some of like obviously the other disaster films that were mentioned, they're on about they focus on like the actual issue or like the actual disaster in itself. But this is more about like how everyone else, like other like side things and how people react to it. Mm. It's more like how life's how it's affected life and life. Yeah, yeah, just normal everyday life. Um, it's so it's so detailed it's it's like it's quite political you know it portrays like the right with with state-sponsored tv ads and posters and then there's like a faceless blameless government who are like hunting down immigrants and and refugees and but then it's kind of balanced as well because we've got like the radical left that are like going around shooting everyone and uh you know they're portraying a message of freedom but they're just as chaotic as, as everyone else. It's funny because the person you relate most to is, is Clive Owen. What a legend. The main character is sort of, it, it says that he used to be an activist, but he just can't really be bothered anymore. It's, it's, he just drinks and smokes all the time. He's really good in that film, but I, I just, overall, I just can't, I can't deal with him a lot of the time. <laughs> I don't even know why. Like, it's just this really something about him that I just like, Mm. That that film is brilliant, though, and he's brilliant in it. But it's performance of his life, isn't it? Really, it's definitely one of those films where it makes you think, like, what would I do in that sort of situation? How would I act? Would I just give up and get drunk all the time, or and would you fight for the freedom of the people? <laughs> and then I just I just wanted to talk about how, like, technically, it's like actually unbelievable. And uh, I know I've banged on about this before as well, but um, I'm really into long takes or what they call one shots. Yeah, yeah. And then if you remember that first one in the car where like they're going down that road and then this, the car that's completely on fire rolls down the hill and stops perfectly in front of them blocking their path. Then a huge like mob of like 50 plus people start sprinting down the, the, the field, the banking towards them. Someone gets shot through the car windscreen. Then they get chased by two kids on a motorbike whilst the car's reversing all in one take. And it's all filmed from inside the car. Like how how is that possible? It's absolutely insane. What is what that, was the the longest take? Was it like ten minutes or just over? Um, I think it the the one where they're, they're making the way through that camp is like just over six minutes. Oh right, it's, it's, which it's is insane. Now. And it it just makes me think. Well, you know, sometimes when you watch a film and all you can think about is how how the fuck did they film that? How did they even yeah. do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like when we went to see. Um, when we went to see 1917 oh. in it. Oh, yeah, 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 to be fair. Absolute epic. Because it tries to be, well, it tries to look like it's all yeah. one take, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, you've, you've really got to give yeah. credit to the actors as well because the amount of rehearsal and prep that's got into be able to shoot something like that is... They've got to hit the marks, haven't they? Like, oh, that's it, yeah. I mean, I recently watched that um, Extraction on Netflix, Chris Hemsworth's new film, and there's a lot of really long takes in that. And it's like, he's got to remember 4,000 different moves just for this one take. Mm. It's absolutely incredible. That's insane. And then, yeah, it's just a special shout out to Michael Caine who makes a, makes a right cameo in that film, doesn't he? That little hippie stoner yeah. fella that's, that's who lives in the field for him as well. You, do, you, you don't really see him play roles like that. Yeah, what a national treasure Michael Caine is though. Eh? Oh yeah. Great, great actor. Those long shots as well, though. it's off one so they did gravity, isn't it? Gra- gravity. Yeah. <laughs> gravity. <laughs> gravity. But I remember I remember watching Gravity in cinema and I remember thinking, like not that I wasn't immersed in the film, but when you're watching it, I'm sure the opening, it doesn't cut for, I think that's going on 15 minutes or something. Because it's just, it's just swirling in and around of that little space station and all the little sounds are coming in. So yeah, that's my choice, Children of Men. James? Uh, yeah, I wanted to give a mention out to 28 Days Later because <clears throat> uh, this is one where technically it's not categorised as a disaster film. Uh, it's, it's, it's a horror, obviously, if you've seen it. But I definitely think it fits into the disaster film kind of feel. I think that's the strongest shout out of these for... It is a disaster movie. Yeah. And I think what uh, what shocked me most when I first watched it, it was my first experience with um, Fast Zombies. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know, um, yeah, the, the Return of the Living Dead back in the 80s, uh, it, that was the first film to feature fast zombies. What, is it? Is in like the actual speed that they move at? So like yeah, uh, they run, zombies... They run up. It's not the typical zombie, you know. Like had their arms out and like just yeah. like slowly getting towards you and you've got time to like get away from them. Like, on, like it follows almost. Yeah. Like everyone was used to just Romero zombies, just the... Like, oh God, they're coming. Right, we'll just, we'll <laughs> gently stroll away then. It's quite, it's quite a scary thought when you watch some of them, when they're moving that slowly, but then when there's like hundreds surrounding you and they all in clothes on you, that's quite a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> scarier if they were rapid though. Well, that's it. Yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. If anything, that's more like, it's, it, it's a pandemic, isn't it? Because it stemmed from monkeys and it's actually a, a rage virus that gets into people. Yeah. That's terrifying. Like, is that actually did happen? <laughs> it's one of those where it's like it's not too far from the realm of reality. It's something yeah. that it's, although probably improbable, but it's still possible. I think like the way it was shot as well, because it wasn't, it didn't look like big. No, it's not big know, budget or anything like that, was it? Big, I think the budget was eight million pound. Well, it was just all shot on like a, just a little digital camera, wasn't it? And it yeah. gives you that sort of, not smartphone feel, but just that like, Hand, yeah, that handheld grit, it's really throwing you in. It's like you're there. It's that Danny Boyle grit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because, well, I was, I was thinking this because for some reason I watched uh, that World War Z um, the other day and, like, I mean, I'm guessing that that's got an infinitely bigger budget than 28 Days Later had. And, it, and it's but nowhere what, near as good. Exactly, but why do we think that 28 Days Later, like, hit that much harder or, like, is, well, considered a, a better film? I think it... I think because it it sort of it's almost like a little cult classic, so it just got word of mouth about it. Not that people didn't know about it, but it what got half of like the press and stuff that World War Z will have. Yeah, I mean, it mm. had such an impact on horror films, though, didn't it? It it revamped the zombie. It, it, it revivaled the zombie genre. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, after that, you had Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, which I think is the best zombie film ever. I know, it, <laughs> I, I know it's, it's a shout, but, like, it is genuinely really good. I know mm-hmm. the Romero films are the most iconic, and they were, the, like, almost the first to do it, were they? But, but Snyder's is just fucking awesome. <laughs> like, there's, there's the scene where the, uh, I think the cops playing chess or something with the, with the gun shop owner across the way. And uh, at one point, the gun shop guy, I think he, I think it's a gun shop that he owns, I don't know. But he holds a sign up just saying hungry. Mm. And it's and it's in the middle of like a little, I think it's just after the montage where everybody's actually a little bit happy and getting on with it. I just, I, just, uh, I think that film's brilliant. I think even, um, so obviously you've got the sequels as well. In fact, yeah. Are they as good though? 28 Weeks is decent. I think it's as good as the first one. I think, it, no, it's, it's definitely not as good as the first one. No, no. But it's it, it's it's still strong. The second one feels more like a horror film, I think. I think they had a bigger budget as well, didn't they? Yeah. A bit like Danny Boyle's had plans for 28 months later for ages. And it's, and I've always, yeah. I just want, because I think, is it is it the end of 28 weeks where you can see Paris? So the virus has spread to Paris. And then the 28 months thing was the idea of it spreading, obviously, more globally. And I, I probably wanted to see that. But I think given, given a film like that, too big of a budget, I think it would ruin it because having such a small budget gives you scope to focus on the, the finer details of the film. I suppose you've got to be more creative with a small exactly, budget. Yeah. yeah, and that usually tends to lean towards a better quality film. That's that's why I was excited with 28 Months because I think Danny Boyle was still attached to direct it, whereas he didn't direct 28 Weeks. But I think it, it, it'd have kept it that way, I think, for the third one. Whether it might have looked a bit better, it wouldn't. Have, I don't think it'd, it'd have been little sort of handheld digital cameras again, but but I think it, it has still kept it in the same vein. What did you think about? What do you think about the ending of 20, 28 Days Later? Because I remember, like, when I watched it when it first came out, I was like, "You, you what, think that was that a it? lot of like, eh? British films?" I think though, a lot of them end kind of very like bluntly <laughs> and like realistically almost. It's like, oh, it's finished now. Oh, well, that was the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a good ride, but uh, <laughs> that's it. I was telling Don't you about that. Sorry, we missed you, didn't I? And I was like. <laughs> It's a brilliant film, but it literally just ends with him covered in blood, crying, going like, "I've got, I've got to work." <laughs> like this, this, this guy's just been pissed on and beaten up, and he, and he can't even take a day off. People like the, the payoff is like so important in a film, and it, it can often like m- even make the film. So I don't know why some some films feel the need to be like, Do "You know what? Right, we're uh, we're just going to finish that yeah. here." <laughs> Fade to black. Right, we, we're done. The ending can literally make a film. Right, um, it's time to talk about Titanic. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna just stay quiet years. for a bit. You, you two go. Well, I'm, I'm just glad I found someone who's like-minded about it because, well, I've no, no one ever picks this film as one of the favorites, and it's almost like people are ashamed to admit like how good Titanic actually is. Yeah, I mean, I'll openly admit that as an eight-year-old, I had it on repeat, um, on VHS, and my mum was like so threaders with having to watch it all the time because it's not even a short film is it it's quite a long it's not it's not an easy one to watch like i used to watch shrek every day but i can't imagine watching titanic every day (laughs) i mean at the time i didn't really know what it was that drew me to the film but i mean looking back i still don't know (laughs) maybe that's why you're such a sensitive soul i just have this vision of you starting every day to smash mouth josh oh man i watch Shrek every (laughs) single day I, well, I knew Celine John. <laughs> <laughs> my mum bought me the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, so I guess it kind of linked to what I was talking about earlier in that. Um, so one of my first memories of this film, obviously I was probably, well, I was definitely too young to go watch it at the cinema, but um, I remember my, my granddad like paid for my mum and dad and all my aunties uncles and their partners to go and watch the film at the, at the cinema together. And it, and it, and it got me thinking like, um, I read that the most like popular cinema going demographic is uh, 16 to 24 years old, but this film, like, everyone everyone wanted to see it like as parents as parents parents like literally every generation wanted to go see it and i just wonder why why, i wonder why it is that everyone wanted to see that film so bad i think it's because it's a story that everybody knows about and before the film you could only really kind of visualize or imagination where you'd be able to see it but this kind of brought it to the big screen where you could see what was like how it most likely went down Mm. And I think that kind of intrigue is, is is what drew people to the film. These stories of uh, historical value, yeah. Which is, I guess, that's kind of why uh, we see a lot of the a lot of British films like they, they choose historical topics, don't they? Because they know that a lot of people are going to go I and think watch them. I'm just interested in death, aren't they? I just death or history or both. A lot of people tend to be like, whether it be like serial killer films, but if they're based on true stories. Like if you find if you find like a murder drama, yeah, I mean, look look at how popular like a, they like are. A, like, yeah, like a like a crime drama on TV where you don't know who the killer is and stuff like that. Even though they're really dark themes and just people dying and stuff, it's probably because that's where you can tap into that dark place in in, yeah. in your mind, isn't it? Where normally <laughs> it would be you'd have to suppress it, but you can kind of just let go and watch something, and it's yeah. like, hmm, how would I? You, have can, go, you can go into that, that dark murder. place. <laughs> Where would I have <laughs> hidden that body? <laughs> uh, obviously, like, well, they recreated the most famous boat in history. Um, they had probably the most beautiful love story ever portrayed on film. Can I just it's, interrupt? It wasn't a boat, it was a God ship. damn it, Josh. Sorry, ship. It is a boat. <laughs> I, w- I would agree, though. But I think every <laughs> everything that gets made now, it, it they look at Jack and Rose as, like, the benchmark of a love story in it's film. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I read that they were like they were twenty one and twenty two at the time, which is they put in mm. such good performances for that age, yeah. man. I mean, um, one of the first scenes that they filmed was the um, that famous drawing scene. So, like the first time that she kind of really did a scene with DiCaprio, <laughs> she had to take a clobber off. Draw me like when I go French girl. I don't know why she's French. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know why I give her an accent. <laughs> Draw me like one of your French girls, Jim. Please, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then obviously to stop it, oh, they had an absolute slammer of a tune by Celine Dion, which is timeless in itself. Absolute banger. I think, like, going back to the theme of, like, what draws people to disaster or, like, the, the good disaster movies, I think, like it sort of like shoves it in your face that this is real. Like this actually happened like in the beginning where it like shows the wreckage and I'm actually going to mm. look at the ship. It's like, this is real. This actually happened. The hype as well. Like when it came out, like, uh, people will, will yeah. have been talking about it saying it was actually a good film. Yeah. I mean, James Cameron really did his research on it though. Like he really wanted every single detail to be perfect. The, the set, it was almost identical, like so close to the actual mm. real life thing. Um, even down to um, the the Morse code machine that was all set up exactly how it would have been on Titanic. 
he, he did multiple dives down to the shipwreck. Brilliant. I think he did, you know, I didn't realize an awesome job. Yeah, because I, I read that um, some of the, the actors and actresses, actors saying that um, he was like a, a really, really strict director and like regimental with all his mm. extras and everything like that. It was the most expensive movie ever made. Like, it took two. It took two uh, production companies to, to fund it: Fox and Paramount, because um, it was just too expensive to for one to like foot the entire bill. And like, they were all expecting to make like a massive loss right up to its release date. So like, there's so much pressure on like one guy who's in charge of all. There's so much money on like one guy to deliver. Yeah. Like, how do you even keep cool during that situation and actually yeah. get on with making art? Like his attention to detail was just phenomenal. I mean, because <clears throat> he a lot of the characters are obviously re- real people, so he had to go and interview the families and the relatives of like the survivors and things to to really kind of get a, a glimpse of who they were. Um, mm. And he was even uh, I watched a documentary where he said um, some of the families weren't happy with the way that he portrayed some of the characters. I I don't know if you remember when um, is it Murdoch who shoots someone and then shoots himself. Oh, yeah. That was a bit of, um, use a bit of creativity there. There's nothing to suggest that that actually happened. Mm. So obviously uh, the family of uh, Mr. Murdoch weren't happy. But yeah, um, the guy, he must have worked his ass off. I mean, it was the first Best Picture winner to be produced, directed, written, and edited by the same person. Is it still Is it still Just the highest grossing? Insane. It isn't it? Uh, no, he got overtaken by Avatar, oh, didn't it? Avatar. Yeah. Which is another Cameron epic. <laughs> um, talking about Avatar, I, I don't know if I don't know, James. I don't know if you noticed this, but do you know when Rose is like, oh, "You see people," and then Jack says, "I see you." Mm. I don't know if you noticed, like that's the Avatar, like um, when they introduced to each other, they say, "I see you," don't they? I just thought, ah, oh. nice little crossover, a little, yeah, a little thread that they picked up there. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice when that happens. I think it's because so, yeah. it's such a nice little line as well, though, isn't it? I see you. I see you. <laughs> see me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what a film. Iconic lines. Uh, I'm the king of the world. And uh, and obviously, draw me like one of your friends, girls. <laughs> Unbelievable. What a film. Everyone, like... I mean, like, with that film, I, I think the last time I watched it before, like, in the lead up to this was... What, 10 years ago or something i'm like oh man i forgot how good this was what a film it's so nice to do that as well isn't it? you've not seen a film for, for ages and then you just watch it oh god yeah what a, what a cracking film it is. yeah and that's why I, t- I tried to like leave it um do you know when like you watch a really good film and, and do you know you, when you consciously tell yourself like i'm gonna leave it a little bit before i watch this again because i want to like try and get as close to experiencing it for the first time again like, as like possible. you almost forget it completely and you go yeah, back yeah. and you can't remember bits i like doing that i mean this uh, i mean well it's probably going to go into a completely different thing in it but like with films like inception and stuff they're fun to watch even like a week later because you pick up on things maybe it's just nolan films mm. yeah i mean like look at it's so many layers <laughs> it's like I, could, I couldn't watch that film over and over again but definitely every couple of years. Because, again, like you said, you just pick up on something else that you didn't realise the first mm. time round or the second time round. I, I guess there are films that are like designed to be watched differently the second time once you know the, the twist or the yeah. or the ending or whatever. Like The Prestige. And there's, the Prestige is more fun the second time round. Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, 
imagine how hard that must be making a film that you know that people are going to watch twice, like entirely differently it, yeah. each time. That's insane. Right. So moving on. So I guess, I guess the reason why we're talking about these types of movies and like the reason we're finished on Titanic is because we're going through a, call it a disaster. We're going through a real life disaster at the moment in the COVID-19. So so I wanted to talk about a couple of other real life events with some articles from from the from the internet. So I've picked a couple of articles and I just want to know your your thoughts on them. So Chernobyl is on fire again. Listen to this. Bad news, radiation 16 times above normal after forest fire near Chernobyl. Ukrainian officials have sought calm after forest fires in the restricted zone around Chernobyl, scene of the world's worst nuclear accident, led to a rise in radiation levels. Firefighters said they had managed to put out the smaller of two forest fires that began at the weekend, apparently after someone began a grass fire, and had deployed more than 100 firefighters backed by planes and helicopters to extinguish the remaining blaze. Police have arrested a suspect believed to have caused the blaze, a 27-year-old man from the area who reportedly told police he had set grass and rubbish on fire in three places for fun. After he had lit the fires, he said the wind had picked up and he had been unable to extinguish them. So, like, Chernobyl is seen like his entire, like, city be engulfed in, and, like, the suffering that it caused, thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to fucking set, free, set some fires around just having a little bin that's a good idea getting rid of some some shit how, how did he how did he get close enough how how close was he to chernobyl good question i don't know let's just but i mean it, it can't have been like that far. well i don't know if it's caused radiation to increase yeah. 16 times above normal it must be i guess because it's like a forest fire it's caught on and like yeah. I mean, how much more damage could someone actually do to that place it's un- uninhabitable for the next twenty thousand years anyway yeah. Also, I don't agree. But... Don't agree with setting it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Not the whole thing. Like the whole thing is just a conspiracy. I don't agree. I don't agree. Chernobyl's <laughs> <laughs> a lie, man. It's a lie. It just needs injecting with some disinfectant. Yeah, just sort them out. Bang <laughs> <laughs> over there to be all right. Yeah. Get Barry Scott on it. Barry Scott. <laughs> Barry Scott in a hazmat, just injecting. <laughs> <laughs> drowning everyone in silly bang <laughs> get him on the front yeah. lines if, you, if you're gonna if you really really want to set some fires please don't do it near Chernobyl is the moral of that story <laughs> have we all seen Chernobyl by the way yeah yeah I haven't what, what do, what do, you haven't seen it yet no oh, it's on my to watch list it is on my to watch list I, I, mean, I can I, lend you it if you want I enjoyed it because, like, obviously, I was aware of it. I was aware of like the whole radiation poisoning thing and stuff, but I never actually learned how it all actually happened and stuff. I never, mm. I, I just never knew. So it was quite cool to actually learn about it all. Yeah, I mean, like as I was saying earlier, like, do you know how um, we find that audiences relate more um, when either the situation like has actually happened, but I guess in Chernobyl we get like a minute by minute explanation of exactly what went wrong mm-hmm. and who did what wrong and everything. So you actually get that sort of i don't know I was, relatability or like you can put yourselves in that situation I, not not that it's obviously the whole thing's not funny but i just i found it a bit funny when um that the, the is it the bit where they're all mining but they're having to be naked but it's the fact that oh yeah it was one of the actors in it i'm sure it was um what was his name from eastenders that more hit over ed with, with iron do you ever watch, is, do you ever watch? in Chernobyl? 
Yeah, I'm sure it's him, right? So Mo, she kills. Is it Trev? Trevor? <laughs> I don't know. What are you on about? He's in. He's in. I'm sure he's in Chernobyl. And he's yeah, and 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 he's just he's it's just weird because you don't see him anywhere. You don't see him in any films anymore. You don't see him on TV, but he's mining in Chernobyl. <laughs> not the <laughs> not <laughs> just the fact that there's someone from EastEnders <laughs> in a mine. But I, I'm gonna, if if anybody does listen to this, they're going to hear this and go, "All oh, right, I've learned something today." <laughs> <laughs> Trev's Trev's not dead. <laughs> Mo didn't do the job. Chernobyl, watch it, James. You need to watch it. Yeah, I definitely will. Right, second article. And this is about, uh, obviously, you know, I'm into games, so this is uh, about World of Warcraft, and it's called The Corrupted Blood Incident. So The Corrupted Blood Incident was a, a virtual pandemic in World of Warcraft, which began on September 2005 and lasted for a week. The epidemic began with the introduction of the new raid Zulgurub and its end boss, Hakar the Soul Flayer. Uh, when confronted and attacked... The, the boss would cast a hit point draining and highly contagious spell called Corrupted Blood. Another nice song title there, George. You can use that if you want. Cheers, I'll take that. The spell, intended to last only seconds and function only within the new area, soon spread across the virtual world by way of an oversight that allowed pets and minions to take the affliction out of its intended confines. By both accidental and purposeful intent, a pandemic ensued that quickly killed lower-level characters and drastically changed normal gameplay, as players did what they could do to avoid infection. Despite measures such as programmer-imposed quarantines, and I guess you're getting the link here, and the players' abandoning of densely populated cities, or even just not playing the game, it lasted until a combination of patches and resets of the virtual world finally controlled the spread. So I guess I just thought I'd talk about that article because, like, the, the the people's actual reactions to that is like absolutely fascinating so you'll find that like people ignored quarantine because they either didn't take it seriously or they thought it was a joke some people just completely like fled the infected areas entirely some people actively tried to spread it to other people some uh characters with healing abilities like offered their help to people and like helped heal lower level characters and some were like simply like telling everyone to get out of the infected zone, which is insane because that's like the type of people that we have now, like, and how people are reacting to COVID nineteen. It's like you've got all the stereotypes of different people. <laughs> yeah, just in like a little microcosm, just like the users yeah. of that game have got like the same as you know our community, but just in a little virtual world. I mean, let's face it; we've all come across one or more of those types of people while COVID-19 has been around. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, I had no idea until you sent this, that this were a thing. No, I didn't. It's, it's it crazy. It's really interesting, though, because, like, you're almost, that's like testing the water, isn't it, of how people would react <laughs> but in, in a safe gaming environment. But exactly, yeah, because yeah, it's, like, it's like what we were talking about earlier. Like, it must be difficult to uh, to act in a disaster movie because it's never, it's never happened to you, so you just got to guess how you would react. But this gives you, like an opportunity to almost live it and see what people would do. Maybe it was a dry run before someone let off COVID-19. There's a little conspiracy theory there. <laughs> COVID-19, <laughs> the demo. It's fake news. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that incident is now actually like being used as a scientific study for how people react to a global pandemic. So what was it with the developers then? Were they just like, could they, could they not stop it? Or did it take a while for them to... It took a while for them to figure out how to stop it. That's mental, that. That you could release something into a game and not have a solution in instantly. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's crazy you can just reset. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, boys, turn off your console. <laughs> Give it a blow. <laughs> yeah. Turn it off and on again. Come on. You would think they would have some sort of regression where they could just be like, right. Um, just resort to an old save. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only we could do that with COVID 19, that'd be ideal, wouldn't it? Just go back ideal. to 2018 when World Cup run. Oh, glorious days. Just, just relive that. Song, oh just man, I, just, I wish that was permanently happening. It was like the never-ending tournament. One of the benefits of like Euro being postponed, though, hopefully they'll just be Euro next year and then World Cup the year after. So you you don't have to wait a year because we already have. That makes sense. Mm. Two on the bounce. Two on the bounce. I think God knows that we're gonna. Uh, well, we needed Rashford and Kane to win that tournament, so he decided to postpone it a year. <laughs> Harry's injured. Shit. Um, so I'm just um, getting getting my friend Connor on the blower because we're going to do a little interview. But I thought in the, whilst we're waiting for him, James, you've actually worked in a cinema, haven't you? Yeah, I did for about eight months. What's it like? Tell you Fifty Shades story. Oh, my, so Fifty Shades of Grey, when that came out, <laughs> that was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it was packed back to front just with middle-aged women who were just uh, so abusive horny and abusive well that was it yeah horny and abusive <laughs> but they were like shouting at the screen <laughs> yeah that's awful so is the uh the the popcorn as fresh as it seems uh so the popcorn it arrives um in these really large plastic bags uh, and we just put them in like a, a heater so it's not even fresh popcorn and for every every large popcorn they sell they earn 500 percent Oh, that's insane. But that's only because a cinema doesn't get its um, profits from ticket sales. Mm, yeah. It has to make its money um, on, on food and drink. That's we why think it's about so expensive. Like piracy and stuff as well. You're going to get less people in the seats because they can watch it at home. Mm. So they have to make the money elsewhere because people aren't frigging. That's it, yeah. I, I always wondered, like, um, and you may or may not know this, but do you know when like a new film's coming out, did they just like send the film by like post or like like how does it arrive at the cinema? Is it a film reel still? No, they don't use film reels anymore. Um, so so it does get delivered. It's digital. Um, it's yeah, a digital copy will arrive, uh, and it gets um, put up into the projector room, uh, which is basically this really large room with all the projectors in. With it's just like massive computers, and it all gets downloaded onto like this big hard drive and things. Um, so the films and the films themselves are all on like a timer. So even if there's, if say there's nobody in that screen, the film will still be getting shown. As if, I mean, so I mean, could someone like um, the person who receives that? Could they just like stick it on the computer and uh, have a little watch? I wouldn't like to disclose that information. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we have to remove the name of uh, the, the cinema that you worked at because you've revealed that they get like 600% profit on popcorn and that <laughs> people just like secretly watch the films before they even... <laughs> That's insane. I, I do just want to acknowledge the, um, how stupid my film thing was that I just said. Like, oh no! Because I thought the the transition to digital was like quite a recent thing, and they were still using, um, they were still using like actual film reels. I yeah, just think I think it, it only it was only in the last I would only say fifteen to twenty years that it's gone digital. Because I just because like obviously film operators and stuff they must be a dying breed. Yeah, like mm. I don't know. 
So yeah, now we're going to have an interview with my friend Connor, who's um, a medical professional, and he's going to talk to us about like what life's actually like on the on the front line. So uh, Connor, um, if you want to, do you want to like sort of introduce yourself and like what you studied and how long for and where and that sort of thing? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, my name's Connor Barker. Um, I studied medicine in Newcastle University uh, for five years before starting work as a doctor last summer. But how have things changed then since this um, since this pandemic? Like, how has your work situation changed? So, to be most the biggest change has kind of been structural. Um, the hospital that I work in is divided in two. You're not allowed to cross that line. There's been some behavioural changes in staff between the way that they interact with each other and the way that they interact with the environment as well. Um, which. So you mean like, yeah, like it's literally been split in half. So people who have coronavirus are in one half of the building and then people who don't are in yeah, the other. It's sealed down the middle of erected some like plastic walls between the hospital and now they've changed it. So you can only enter and exit via, um, the COVID side and the non-COVID side. And then like, so you know how um, you hear in the news that um, like hospitals have been told to like almost like, like focus as much as they can on, on the coronavirus. Like what happens to, so are, are people being turned away or are people like, how does that work? Um, Obviously not turned away. Well, but. yeah, it's not that people are being turned away. It's, um, that kind of is a bit of an odd phrase, but in terms of... I didn't mean that. I, I realised turned away sounded stupid no, when I said it. <laughs> it, it, it. Like that, you can imagine just someone turning up to the door and you say, nope, turn around, you're not, not doing that. Um, <laughs> but in a, in a sense, they are doing that. Um, in that a lot of the services that we normally offer, the operations that we normally offer, the cancer care we normally offer, the procedures and investigations that we normally offer have just been overwhelmed and set aside for um the coronavirus and so whilst we're not turning away people at the door we are running a much lower service and people that had appointments and plans um they won't be able to be kept and anything will be dragged out so in a sense that yeah they're not getting the service they would or should be getting and how does it work with um, staffing-wise? Do you have specific coronavirus uh, healthcare professionals um, and would you like swap between working in the non-COVID area, work on a non-COVID ward on certain days, or how does, how does that yeah, work? Yeah, that's um, at the minute where I'm working, we're doing, we're doing 12-hour shifts um, and sticking to the COVID side, but throughout the course of the month, I'll work between COVID and non-COVID areas. So I've had I've had to, have they had to like train pretty much all the staff who work there on how to how to deal with coronavirus or is it? Yeah, well, a lot of the things that we already dealt with, we dealt with these. Um, we, we dealt with infectious diseases on a daily basis. This is just a new one. Um, it's so much more prevalent, and we need to get it right every time. So there has been some training involved. 
But what's quite what what's been quite interesting is because of the decrease in surgery, a lot of that those wards have been closed and staff have been taken from those wards. That includes nursing staff who are working on medical wards, dealing with problems they've never dealt with. So they need training to deal with those which are relatively um, basic medical problems, just haven't dealt with them before. And there's even been, um, on the medical side, consultants who have been requisitioned from surgery and become acting as junior doctors in a medical medical role. Um, because, again, that's where the greater need is at the minute. Obviously, you're... More involved than than all of us here. What do you think is going to happen? In what respect? Do you think that we're just going to have to wait for a vaccine? Do you think that we're just going to uh, like? Can you be infected twice? Well, nobody knows. I'm afraid. Um, this is it's just a completely new disease, and I don't, I don't know, and I don't think anyone does at the minute. But like, obviously, when you see like the, you read the articles are saying, oh, we expect a vaccine to be developed here within the next like I don't know six months or whatever. Is that even realistic? I don't, definitely in the year twenty twenty is not realistic. I think in the year twenty twenty one sometime that is. Um, but I mean, because because COVID nineteen like is it's a lot like the it's a lot like the the flu virus in, in it, and like that the the flu vaccine like changes all the time and. So is that not the same with, with COVID-19? Uh, in, a, in effect, um, from what I understand, and I don't, have, I don't have a deep knowledge of it, but from what I understand, the flu vaccine has a couple of proteins on its, the flu virus has like a couple of proteins on its surface, and they can change quite regularly. Um, so the vaccine each year tries to um, target the most prevalent version of the virus in the community, but it, it won't get, it won't work for everyone. Whereas the type of the virus, the coronavirus is, um, it has the potential to change its DNA every time it replicates. So what you've already seen in China is that there were two strains that were prevalent um, and one was about 70%, one the other, the other 30%. And they're infecting people and give it, causing different disease outcomes. But it's very much like the game pandemic, pandemic with um, a virus that is able to change um, RNA every time that it replicates. Sometimes it will become more infectious with a mutation. It might become less infectious. It might be a bad one. It might become more. It might be you might get a lethal copy. Um, however, that might not be able to replicate. If that's too lethal, it might not be able to replicate and get out across a larger population. So it would take someone smarter than... So thinking of all those things, I can't explain how a vaccine will be made available anytime soon for it. Like they they make it sound in the news, they make it sound so simple, don't they? It's like, oh yeah, we're, we're expecting a vaccine to be developed soon and then it'll undergo testing and then it'll be made as readily available uh, and as widely available as we can but obviously from what you've just said and like you said it, it only like scratches the surface of the the complexity of it it's highly unlikely in it that it'll be ready anytime well, soon you, you're throwing say a vaccine the dart you're throwing it at a moving target as well so even when they get yeah. a vaccine 
um, it may be effective for a large number of people, um, but that doesn't mean that it will have changed again by sometime in the future. And this is just going to be a disease that comes becomes endemic within the population, just like the flu. That's crazy. Well, um, has anyone has anyone else got any questions for Connor before we let him go? Uh, none from me. No, no. Sound well. Um, well, thank you, Connor, for for coming on. No problem. Lovely to talk to you. That was Connor there. That's actually that's insane, isn't it? I think it's interesting, like the whole vaccine thing, like because I mean I'm only going off contagion, but the way that they once they had it, they were giving it to people like as a lottery on their birthday, weren't they? So the draw, if you were born on this day, you'll get it first and then so on and so forth. So it's interesting to think like if we did get one, how it would be distributed, who who would be, obviously <laughs> the, the people higher up and the, you know, dickhead politicians, they'll get it first, but. Yeah, and footballers. <laughs> well, you got to have the Premier League, <laughs> haven't you? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's most important. At least that's entertainment. Yeah, it's just, cr- <clears throat> but yeah, it, I guess it's interesting. The, the crazy thing is, it's like, it's, it's not going like because people say. I mean, even we've been guilty of saying it. Like when all this blows over, or on and, and like stuff like that. But it's not go- It's not going anywhere. Like it, even when like the, it, you know, the the numbers die down a little bit, there is still going to be people that have it, and there's still going to be people that are able to get it. So it's so it can a, always be like a second wave, a third wave. It's crazy, isn't it? That was interesting, though. Yeah, the the half and half thing. Oh, yeah. You're now entering the covid area i don't i mean because i don't know if that that stuff it matters it might it might be somewhere to find out that kind of info but i i didn't know so it's quite it is interesting mm. so yeah um so we're coming to the end of the of the episode really and um i think we've we've, we've talked about it a little bit but because we've we've talked about films and we've talked about like actual real life disasters um i just wanted to make a a bit of a point really and I know and James might want to expand on this having done a bit of acting in your time um how hard must it be to approach acting in a in a in a disaster movie because you're literally just guessing like you're given the situation and you literally just have to guess how one might act or react well I think it's uh you'd approach it in in the way that you'd approach any other role uh it's not the only sort of film where you don't know. Um, you, it's not a situation you've been in before. You look at Marvel films and things; those actors have never faced, you know, <laughs> Thanos. Thanos before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, uh, as an actor, you, you've got such a plethora of different techniques that you could call upon uh, when you're working uh, in a role. But preparing for a role isn't just about your technique. Uh, there's so much research that goes in um, to prepare. So it's like if I were to be an actor in the film Titanic and I knew that my character was an actual person that you know that was there, I would delve so far into their lives uh, to find what their story was, try and find out how much I, who that person was. Um, <clears throat> but like going on to like the different styles, uh, I'm going to start by mentioning uh, a lesser-known technique, uh, but I think would be quite important in a in a high-octane disaster film, uh, and that's the Chekhov style. Michael Chekhov was a Russian actor, uh, director, and theatre practitioner. Um, did was we? referred by we did, yeah, um, and he was referred by Stanislavski, um, 
who I'll come on to shortly, as his most brilliant student. He believed in a more unnatural style of acting. He endeavoured to teach ways through which actors could tap into their subconscious minds through various exercises. His style of acting is uh, described as a psychophysical approach uh, in which transformation, working with impulse, imagination and inner and outer gesture are central. It's something that offers clear and practical tools working with your imagination, your feelings and, and the atmosphere. Basically, what I'm saying is it's a technique where you use big gestures as like emotional triggers. Is that the weird spider thing that we <laughs> that we studied? Did he do that? Metamorphosis, yeah. Metamorphosis, that was the one. That was so weird. Yeah. But in, in that more for like, um, for like theatre though, because it's on about like really uh, exaggerated gestures and, and that sort of thing. The advantage with film though, like obviously like you're saying, those techniques, you could be doing those techniques before you do a take. Yeah, those, those, those techniques, they're transferable from theatre onto, onto screen. But I thought like the idea with, and like the key difference between theatre and film is that film, you're able to be like much more, much more subtle, so, yeah? Yeah, but in say like a disaster film or like an action film, there's so much physicality in it that that sort of technique where you're doing those big gestures, it, it's a very physical form of acting. Mm. Not everything's subtle. Mm. So I think, like you say, how you'd react in different if you were in a disaster film, or like if a disaster was happening and stuff. But like the situations might change, but you're still drawing from the same kind of feelings. It'll still be fear and like that uncertainty. Like so, you'd you'd still kind of have a good idea of how you would react, especially mm. obviously getting direction, aren't you? But yeah, <clears throat> I mean, but it, um... it, it'll still be familiar, like emotions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that kind of goes on to like um, everyone's probably heard of method acting, mm. uh, which was uh, it's a technique of acting which uh, you aspire to completely be emotionally identifiable with a part. So that's based on um, Stanislavski's ideas, using emotional triggers to assist, uh, using memories, but then emphasize on on that reaction. So it's like you really kind of engross yourself entirely into that role. It can be dangerous, as uh, you know, like uh, Heath Ledger was a very famous method actor. Mm. It's just something that you've got to be careful with. I mean, there are some famous method actors out there that are doing really, really well. Uh, it's just one of many techniques you could use. I just had this vision of somebody trying to, trying to get ill. Just, something, <laughs> not licking, just licking, like, I don't know, cash machines and stuff. I want to yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> uh, you, do, you do read stories of people doing, like, absolutely crazy things to try and get into into character don't you like did you ever read about like what jared leto did as joker like sending people oh, like used condoms a, and sh- shit yeah, like that yeah. he did i think, he, over I think he just took it too far yeah, yeah. and that, that, that performance will not it'll be remembered for all the wrong reasons oh mm. yeah definitely like there is no like one solid like root of his performance that you think right he's, he, that's what he's going for do you know what I mean? There's, he's doing so many different things. Like, I, like because you think like Nicholson, obviously, it, it was almost just playing Jack Nicholson, but he almost played that kind of gangster joke. Isn't that what Jack Nicholson does anyway? Well, yeah, this is it. Like, Obviously, Mark, Mark Hamill's is obviously the best, I'm just saying. <laughs> but he's the, he's, he's the more sort of like manic laughing clown. Heath Ledger was the more chaotic, like loose cannon, like that hadn't really been seen. 
And then Jared Leto just went, you know what? I'll just take all of them and just do this weird <laughs> shite. It's difficult, isn't it? Because when you've got like that many, that many people who've done it before you, it's like, right, <laughs> shit. I either need to think of something completely new or try and take the best out of all of them and make my own, but it's, it's just so hard, isn't it? I think that's what Whacking Phoenix did really well. It's because he didn't care. I think because if you watch interviews with him and he, he doesn't not that he doesn't acknowledge the other actors obviously he says they were brilliant but he wasn't afraid or he wasn't intimidated by their performances he just that's it. he just did what he did yeah because everyone that's was saying did, did you find that you had to get into like a weird place for the role and he just sat there he's like no <laughs> some people <laughs> don't like, some yeah. people can literally just switch it on and they're in that role and mentally that's who they are and then as soon as you know the take's done they're back to normal yeah some people can do that and then some people just can't. It's a gift. <laughs> it's a gift. I mean, there's no right or wrong way of, of doing it. You find a technique that works for you and it works. Because, yeah, there's, a, there's an age-old argument in it. There's no right or wrong way, but there can be a, well, I suppose it's opinion-based in it, but to me, there can't be a bad way. <laughs> yeah. Like, if it's, a sh- if it's shit, it's shit, innit? <laughs> <laughs> it is. And then here's a question for you. Do you reckon we have a base our reactions to things that happen to us based on what we've seen in a film? I definitely think when you're watching it, you kind of prepare. Like you, you see a disaster film, you prepare yourself. You think, oh, if this happens, then yeah, I'm going to react this way. I'm going to react that way. You use it as a tool. Because they do intentionally put characters in there that make bad decisions for you to go, why are yeah. you doing that? Mm. So you, you're already thinking that what they're doing is bad because you wouldn't personally do that. But even just like... um domestic thing like even if you watch i don't know say watch a soap like coronation street or something do you never watch some of them scenes of thinking this is like the way that they're talking to that other person is like completely unnatural that's just bad acting (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe don't you ever remember that that um there were the live eastenders thing oh yeah when, when he threw himself did he throw himself off the roof or he, he died anyway didn't it and his dad just and it were live and you could see him retching and it was so fake and he was like <laughs> <laughs> it was just bad this makes me think Jod of a uh, of uh, FIFA as well like do you reckon that some it has influenced the way that football is played by FIFA like people take more like finesse shots and stuff like that since FIFA I don't know I bet it has you know when weird. people try that like trademark finesse shot from that angle, you think, mate, they've played FIFA and they've like thought, oh, might try that IRL. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Old RB, old RB. Sorry, I'm an Xbox guy. So yeah, I guess in summary, actors are bloody good, aren't they? I'd say they're right, yeah. I think they're so underrated. Like, <clears throat> they're, they're, a lot of them don't get enough credit for, for what they do. Get paid. Because the, pre- the preparation of a role... <laughs> It's half the job. And just, yeah, to make it seem, like, natural, it must be so hard to do. Definitely. Right, um, so, yeah, we're coming to the end of the episode now. So, do you reckon, last question, do you reckon we'll ever see films based on COVID-19 and what we're seeing now? Yeah, definitely. definitely. I'm quite interested to see how it'll affect soaps, though. No, right, I keep going, I must have mentioned these standards twice now. I don't actually watch soaps, but the storylines within that, are they going to use it? Uh, so one of the writers of Coronation Street and Emmerdale um, has come out and said that they're not going to really include it uh, when they start filming again, but they're just going to have like little nods to it. Right. 
Well, so for the most part, just pretend that it never happened. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Is Norris still in Corrie? He is, yeah. He's just come back. What? Come guy. back from where? <laughs> the dead. <laughs> what do you mean? No, the dead? Yeah. no he's, he's been in um, like a luxury residential and Ken's moved into it. <laughs> Ken? <laughs> it's always funny when like, I don't know, someone oh. I like goes on maternity or like, I don't know, has a bit of, has like a, goes on holiday or something like, oh, they've just been to Bradford and back. I like, they, they invent like a side story for why they've just disappeared for like three weeks. Like when they release those like mini films, <laughs> just release somebody's adventure to Bradford. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it'd be interesting that um, this will be in the, be in history books, won't it? And like we were speaking about, about people are drawn to stuff. If they make it like, if, if Michael Bay, well, maybe not Michael Bay, <laughs> if somebody gets up, so if somebody gets hold of like a really good like COVID nineteen script and it gets in cinemas, people flock to see that. Oh yeah, definitely. Especially because well, like, well, especially the generation after us, they got they're all going to remember like it's all it's all that us and as parents are going to be talking about for for years and years to come, isn't it? Like it's such a big thing and it's affected so many li- yeah. lives. That it's all we're going to be think, talking about. I think if they do a film about it, it's probably going to be. Like, um, like almost like, like the Churchill film. It's going to be based on the way that the government has, have dealt with it and the shortcomings yeah. of, 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 like, should the government have... It'll go into the point of, like, should the government have done more? Should they have reacted quicker? It'll ask those questions that we're asking now. It, mm. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I think Contagion kind of tackled everything the way things have gone. Like, I'd never seen it, and then, obviously, once lockdown everything happened, I, I watched it. But it's it's scary how a lot of the stuff in that is just reflecting what's happening now. Yes, the interesting thing is, like, if you talk about the Churchill film, we have like one version of what, like, us like what history is written by the victors or whatever. I guess with how this, with how this has been reported, we've got so many different perspectives of it that um, I don't. There's not just going to be one like simple accepted narrative of what's happened. There's so many different versions and experiences that, yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting how it's studied in it. Unless you do it like a purge type, like purge style, so you've got all the different characters. Loads of different storylines going on at once. Mm. It's difficult to be unbiased as well. Mind you, it'd have to just be a documentary. Biased towards or against? No, him. Well, no. If they were to, if they were to tell the story of how Britain have reacted to it and stuff, you're you're either you either think they've done well or they haven't, don't you? So <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have to challenge that if you were to do a film, wouldn't you? Mind mm. you, a TV series would probably be best, and you can tell more stories. Definitely. Right. Well. I think we I think we'll wrap it up there. So uh, this is our this is our first episode. So we're, we're happy to listen to any feedback, comments, or suggestions. Um, Do give us pointers, what you liked, what you didn't like, definitely, or any themes or genres that you want us to talk about in the future. So yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, or if you're listening and want to be a guest, absolutely, let us know. Right? Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. So and that's, that's goodbye for now. Bye. Ta-ta. Bye.